November 2009, a young President Obama, uh, still in his first year of his presidency, went to meet uh, the uh, Emperor of Japan, Emperor Aki, uh, it's hard for me to say, Akihoto, or Akihito, there we go, almost got it. Um, and in so doing, well, it sparked for some people an outrage, a disgrace. He, he, as he went to meet him, he bowed low before the emperor, as we can see in this picture. Now, you might not think much of it, and maybe you shouldn't, but what sparked outrage is, you know, this is the man who's representing America, the most powerful man in the world. And as he goes before the emperor of Japan, you know, this nation that has almost no army at all in the wake of World War II, he bows low. Now, some would defend uh, his actions say, you know, it's just this respectful tradition for visitors to bow to the emperor. However, others would say he's not a normal guest. He's the president of the United States. And the bow that he does is not a bow between colleagues. It's a low bow expressing his inferiority before the emperor. Now, I'm not terribly interested in talking about whether he should or shouldn't have done that. What I'm interested in is talking about the culture in which what well, we are, where the most powerful man in the world would think that it would be appropriate ever to bow before another. Can you imagine, you know, looking throughout history of Caligula bowing before somebody else? Or Genghis Khan? Or Stalin? No, the, President Obama, like us, has grown up in a culture that has been, well, that views humility as such a virtue that there's a willingness to make a, a faux pas in expressing humility rather than the other way around. Now, you may think that such a, such a value and such a virtue is, well, it's part of the, the human condition or it's something that we all share. But as you look throughout history and you look around the world, such a value is startling, startling absent. Humility, for most of human civilization, was not a virtue. And sometimes it was actually a vice. But we, here in the United States of America and in the Western world, we view humility very often as, as one of the greatest virtues and the greatest goods. Why is that? Well, the simple answer is that we have been thoroughly Christianized. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you've been to church or not, the, the cultural waters in which we swim have been Christianized, where we look at something like a president bowing or great men pretending to be low. And we expect it. We demand it. Our politicians do all that they can to show, hey, I'm one of, one of you guys. I'll wear hoodies. I'll go, to, I'll go to, you know, slummy restaurants. I'll walk through cities and city streets that aren't really for my type of people. We like to pretend, whether it's true or not, that we are low, that we are close to the common people. We desire humility. 
We love humility. And in such, we actually set ourselves apart from much of the rest of the world. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you're here as a guest and you bring a Bible, there's a red one in front of you, and you can turn to page 1196. And Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, this church that's dealing with some you know, infighting and turmoil, and he, and he presents his instructions for something that they are to do. And for us, living in the culture that we live in, we it doesn't necessarily strike us as that bizarre. We miss the radical nature of what Paul is calling these people in, to, to the mindset into which he's calling these people to conform. The ridiculousness that these words may have been heard of from the first hearers. And what does he tell them? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We're in verse 3. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking for your own interest, but each for the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of, as Christ Jesus, who, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This Christmas, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, God made flesh. As God descended down the stairway of time, he wrapped himself in frail flesh. How bizarre well, that might seem to you today, but how bizarre it would seem to the first hearers of the gospel. When gods came near, they didn't rejoice and celebrate. When gods came near, they stood and they cowered. The gods came to dominate, to destroy, to devour, but not this God. This God, what does he do? He empties himself. He pours out the things that make him great and glorious. He exchanges, if you will, his power to become a helpless babe. He gives up his sovereign state to become a slave and to die a slave's death. He gives up his glory to become a frail being made of flesh and bone as you and I. And this, well, this was bizarre. This is not how gods behave. This is not how noble people behave. Noble people cling to their honor and make sure that you know it. Noble people pursue honor and status. Great people make sure that you know that they're great. We read the... the, the, the autobiographies of the great kings of Rome, and they are, I did this, I did this, I conquered these people, I wept the floor with them, I did these things, aren't I great? We read the introductions to other biographies, and they want to make sure that you know, hey, I'm a pretty awesome person. I was born to noble parents, I got this education, I did all these things, you should listen to me. But this God, this one, 
This one whom the, these early Christians are proclaiming as the king of all, all the world, God in the flesh, come to dwell with us. What does he do? No, he, he empties himself of power and status and glory, and he comes low. He comes low. It's humility unlike the world had ever seen. Humility that was considered for many not a virtue, but a vice. Unbecoming, shameful, well, humiliating, something to be avoided. One of the great uh, compositories of the, the moral code at the time, the Delphic Mas- uh, Maxims, it was 147 lists of pithy phrases of what it, makes, what it means to be a good person. Do these things and you will, well, things will go well for you. And many of these are really good moral and spiritual advice. Help your friends. Nothing in excess. Stop yourself from killing. It's good advice. But notably absent from any of these things is the virtue of humility. To be low. To be low for the sake of others. Now you can be low to the gods, you can be low to the kings. If you're of low status, you can be low to the, those of higher status, but you don't be low to those below you. You don't become low to your peers. No, rather, what it says is to detest, detest disgrace or pursue honor. Not pursue what is honorable, pursue honor. That others would praise you and think well of you. The virtue of the day was philotemia, the love of honor. To be praised by people, to be looked up to, that the people around you would look at you and say, that is the good life. That's what I want to be when I grow up. And in the midst of such a society, the Christians came along and they and they, said they preached and proclaimed a God who didn't stay up in heaven as a no, what they would think a noble God would do. No, he came down. He became frail. He became weak. He became broken. That became the Christian ethic. And how much, how much of a difference do we see today because of that? Well, a few, a few weeks, maybe a couple months ago, it, it kind of hit headline news. I don't really keep up with the, the gossip rags, but it hit my ears of the alleged comedian James Corden as he's dining at a Balthazar restaurant in New York City. And it became headline news as this restaurant banned him from their restaurant. You know, this man with money and status and fame. But you know what? He became, he was very, very rude to the guests or to the waiters and the wait staff. He would yell at them and scream for simple mistakes and rant and rave about it. And eventually the guy said, you know, you're banned from our restaurant. Why? Because we have a, dis, a disgust, a distaste for, for people of position when they, when they view themselves as, as superior, when they're rude or dismissive or condescending to those of, well, service workers. We despise that attitude. You know, the let me talk to the manager attitude for any potential problem. The one who barks their orders at the waiter. 
The one who doesn't say thank you when given something, but just receives it as if it was their due. The person without humility. What? It disgusts us. But all those behaviors and actions would have been commonplace to, the, to those who heard the gospel. Those who heard Christians proclaiming God coming in the flesh to die, to suffer, not to be like the gods of Apollo and Zeus who came to rape, devour, and, plunge, and destroy. No, the God who came to suffer. He redefined what glory is. And how do we know this? Well, we, we look at the critics. What's known as the Alexamenos Graffito. It is the, it is the earliest portrait of Christ. And in the Alexamenos Graffito, and can we, we can bring it up here, we, we see an image of someone being crucified with the head of a donkey. Below, and it, it reads, Alexamenos worships his God. No, some critique and criticism and satire doesn't really last through the ages, does it? What, made, what was funny for people two millennia ago doesn't really seem that funny most of the time today. But the critique that this writer, this graffitist, offers of Alexamenos well, it still bites. How does he view Jesus? He's a donkey. He's a, he's a donkey God, unworthy of worship. As others say, he's, he's just an executed criminal. It's pathetic. It's laughable. It's perhaps even disgusting. And in the wake of Jesus' death and crucifixion, in the wake of the story of Jesus, this man who we proclaim to be God in the flesh, who died, Christians had, an, had a choice to make. They could look at Jesus, who died this shameful death, and say, well, maybe he wasn't as great as we thought he was. Or, and this is the path that was taken, glory and honor becomes redefined. That what it means to be great is not what they would think that it would mean to be great in Rome. No, to be great is to go low. To great is to give up your privilege for the sake of others. Your greatness is serving others at the expense of yourself, even being humiliated on the cross. And what does, the, what does Paul write? He humbled himself. He wasn't humbled by Rome, who put him in his place. He wasn't humbled by his accusers who threw him up on the cross. No, he humbled himself. And in this, in that, God revealed the greatness of his character and transformed all of human history. As David Bentley Hart writes, he says that in a world that believes that at the end of the day, the index of human value and of moral truth are degrees of privilege, power, and pedigree, Humility may be the singular greatest offense to the moral sensibility of the ancient world and to humans in general, and the greatest revolution of our understanding of the moral good as a social and personal practice. 
What we see in the person of Jesus is this value of humility has become real and known to people that was despised before. And so as Paul's writing to the people, what he's saying, he says, in your dealings with one another, treat others as better than yourself. What? Don't treat the slave as a slave and the nobleman as a nobleman, that whoever you're talking to, whether they're high or they're low, you treat them as better than yourself. Why? Because this is the path of Christ. This is the mindset of Christ Jesus, who God, better than you, yet he emptied himself. Yet he suffered for you. Yet he went through humiliation on your behalf. And that is what's virtue. That is glory. The call to the Christian to have that mindset in a world that's clinging to power and status, that's groping after the things that seem to make them great. And Jesus says, nope, the way is different than what the world says the way is. The way up is the way down. To serve, to surrender, and even to suffer. That victory is suffering for the other, other people. This is a God unlike us, a God unlike the, the way the world has ever known. Excuse me. <coughs> you know, last year, Facebook changed its name to Meta and, and launched what's been known as the Metaverse. And, you know, this is just, you know, the next iteration as we get closer to those dystopian fantasies that were warned about by science fiction writers. These alternate worlds that so consume us that we become subject to them. It's, it's hard when, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is proclaiming, you know, these ideas about, you know, the metaverse to not think immediately of things like WALL-E or Ready Player One or, or perhaps The Matrix. These ideas of, you know, that these alternative online, you know, non-bodily worlds become so dominant that that becomes the true us. That the true me is made up of pixels and codes and not flesh and blood. And we're warned by, by the prophets of this age, the, the scientific, you know, science fiction writers about the dystopian fantasies that these might produce. To have our, our existence not embodied but yet we continue to march onward to such things, don't we? We continue to look to these, you know, other worlds into which that we can escape. Escape pain. Escape suffering. Escape our mundane existence for something that's exciting. Right? Having trouble losing weight? Well, not your online avatar. Six-packs. Jacked. Feeling dissatisfied with your achievement? Well, guess what? You can save the world three times this week. Worried about disease or COVID? Don't play Oregon Trail. And besides that, you'll pretty much be good. <laughs> we get to escape into different worlds and forget about the life as, well, of this existence. Life that's often met with hardships and sufferings. Life that is sometimes mundane and boring, and we get to escape. 
And this isn't a new phenomenon. No, throughout all of history, people would want to escape for little bits into different worlds. Before the internet age, there was TV, where we get to escape my mundane life to something that's a little bit more exciting and fun. Before that, there were books. And before that, we got to, you know, listen to somebody retell Homer's Odyssey. But ultimately, the storyteller gets tired, the book has to close, and the TV turns off. But now, the, you know, the prevalence of these things consume us more and more, and we see how easy it is for us to be consumed by the things that, well, that we're consuming, to escape this world into a better world, a world that we demand, a world that fits our interests, that suits our desires, that, that fits every need that we may have. We demand a better world, and we're going to find it no matter how much the scientific, sci-fi writers warn us against it. And when we see our own demand and need and desire to escape from this world, we see all the more the God who came to us. A God who didn't come here to reach a better world. No, he left the better world. He didn't come here to escape suffering. No, he came here to suffering, to suffer. He exchanged the bliss of heaven to become a man of sorrows. The one attended to by angels came not to be served, but to serve. He came to enter into our suffering to be beaten and rejected, afflicted, and killed. The highest became the lowest. The greatest became the least. The big became small. The omnipotent became a helpless babe. It is a kind of humility unknown by the ancient world, despised even by the ancient world, but it is a humility that has shaped and transformed our lives because it is is the the story of of God himself who welcomes people into his life. It is the humility of God that, that, well, it was despised by whoever wrote the Alexandros Graffito, but it is adored by those who follow him. A God unlike any other. A God unlike what we would ever imagine a God to be. A God who empties himself and comes to his people. It's a God who can be trusted. It's a God who can be loved. It's a God who can be followed. And this morning, I call you, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, to follow in the ways who marked for us and changed the, the very definition of virtue. The God who redefined humility from being a vice to being the greatest attribute that a person can possess. This man named Jesus, the one who got to choose his station in life and chose to come low among an oppressed people and to die the, the, the death of a slave. That you, that you, might escape into a better world. And in a poem written by a a British theologian, Andrew Wilson, I'll end my sermon with this. It started in a stable. It's a story and not a fable of the son who laid aside his glory and left his father's table. And he stepped into a world unstable to save the weak, 
the powerless, the unable, to make powers crumble, the wise to stumble, but to beautify the humble. It's a story of a Savior able to still the storms and make mountains tumble, yet who came to heal and save the lost, the marginal, and the tempest-tossed, at whatever the cost, and invites us to his table. It's a story of a man who broke the curse of Babel, who welcomes all mankind regardless of label, whose blood speaks better than the blood of Abel, who resurrects creation from the grave back to the cradle, so that all can see that God is able, the all-wise author of the story, the king of glory. And it all started in a stable. I invite up the worship team. Kind Father, we, uh, we are in awe of what you have, have shown us of what you are like. A God unlike the, world, the ones that the world has, has ever known and has ever seen. A God of mercy and justice and grace and, and even humility. The one who never needed to humble himself before anyone, yet did so willingly and voluntarily that heaven volunteered for the cross. That we, regardless of label, regardless of status, regardless of of the things that the world says makes us great or, or not great, that we are invited to take upon his status, that we too may become children of God, that we too may be adopted to be heirs and co-heirs of your kingdom. So come, Lord Jesus. Come and draw men and women to yourself. Come help your people to walk in the ways of your son Jesus, to empty ourselves of our own uh, ambition and pride, that we would be like you in this world. So send us out, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.